This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. This episode is presented by Landing International, a B2B sales and marketing platform that's revolutionizing beauty retail through technology. Hi, I'm Martin Maulovizada. I'm a New York City-based makeup artist, and it's a matter of truth. Influencer marketing is not a new concept. Brands have always leveraged influential people to help market their brands and products. Social media turned it into an industry. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. I believe real influence comes from expertise, informed opinions, and leadership, not likes and followers. While the impact of influencers is often referred to as a paradigm-shifting trend, in reality, it's a dynamic that has always been part of society, and it's ingrained in the human psyche. In simple terms, it's human nature to want things just beyond our reach. Aspiration is the fuel of the influencer industry. Mateen Malawazada is the embodiment of real influence. Even his Instagram bio has gravity. Afghan-raised feminist, Berkeley-raised molecular biologist, New York-raised makeup artist turned non-toxic beauty and human rights advocate. At least for Mateen, his influence was created by passion, substance, and honesty. So Mateen, thank you for being here. I'm so excited to have you because, you know, I kind of felt the first time we met, we were like kindred spirits. I felt like I had known you forever. I couldn't take my eyes off of you. <laughs> That's very sweet. Um, you know, and we met in kind of um, an environment that is kind of overtly creative. We met doing trend forecasting. Yes. Which is, um, it's always interesting because it brings people from as it should, from kind of different walks of life. But you really kind of have to put yourself out there because it is just a hunch when you're thinking three years out. And it's sort of what's ever rattling around in your head. You kind of have to form it into something cohesive. And it was shocking, like, how similar the things we pulled were. Absolutely, yeah. um, You know, and so, you know, even though we don't see each other very often, I feel like sort of this very connection oh absolutely um, um, i obsessively <laughs> look at your pinterest and your Instagram. i know there was a time where i actually think because neither one of us are digital natives yes <laughs> but i do think we may have been early adopters on pinterest yes yes um, absolutely because we used to message each other and we would like molest each other's pinterest boards <laughs> i literally wanted to like repost everything that you posted um but you know on that point i think it's really uh, and i wasn't going to start here but since we're talking about sort of social media y you know i think what is your feeling about kind of instagram versus pinterest because they're very different platforms they're extremely different pinterest to me it's a it's an grown-up form of Instagram. It's a little more, you can collect things. It's almost like archiving things mm -hmm. for me. I used to take screenshots of everything and then lose them and I could never They'd be organize all, them I, enough. all over my desktop. Exactly. Yeah. 
And with Pinterest, I can put a mood board together and keep it private until I show mm -hmm. it to a client. So it helps me in those terms of like, okay, I'm, I'm keying a fashion show. What are the inspirations that I pull from beauty or, or anything, actually? Mm -hmm. So those images I would put together on a board, and I would be specifically for that person. Mm -hmm. I would send it to them. And it's interesting because it, it really kind of, you don't have to make a board anymore. You don't right. have to bring images with you. It's It's all on your phone. As Instagram, although you can save on Instagram and you can do the same, it doesn't have the same kind of flexibility with, mm -hmm. with organization. Right. Instagram to me is like a, a tabloid magazine that you just kind of scroll through and have fun yeah. and enjoy the images and and know that it's all like it's almost has smoke and mirrors. Yeah, and there's also sort of definitely smoke and mirrors or contouring and filters. Absolutely. <laughs> but there's also Instagram kind of has like this fleeting quality to it where I think Pinterest for me, I used it for the same way. I was like, oh my God, here's this tool that can actually sort of help me organize myself. Mm. Um, but, you know, and, and I think that for brands – Pinterest, when you have to sort of create kind of a hierarchy of priorities, is always on the bottom. Mm, yes, absolutely. And for me, I it for me maybe it's because I naturally gravitated towards it. I was like, but Pinterest is so much more powerful. Like, there's an evergreen quality to it. Yes, the sort of the psychology behind why people are on Pinterest is totally different. Like, they're there to actually look for things. Yes, yeah, it's a research tool more mm -hmm. than. Um, more than showing off. It's not a place that you show off your work or you're trying to be cool or this or that. It's just, it's literally just there to to support you. Right. So I feel that way with it. I, I really feel supported by by my peers on Pinterest, by exchanging things or reposting or being forwarded something. Mm -hmm. uh, I take it more seriously than I would other social media mm -hmm. platform. Um, Twitter's completely different, but um, especially... Instagram, it's more of a, you know, they send me jokes or a meme or something right. funny. While on Pinterest, it's like, oh, have you looked at this color? Oh, really? So you actually, or... you actually use it with your peers to sort Absolutely. of... Absolutely, yes. Really? Yes. Interesting. Absolutely. Interesting. Uh, and it's nice. It's nice to see that because it's really inspirational to me. So actually, if people really want to know where the real sort of creative trend inspiration is happening, it's actually on Pinterest. Absolutely, yeah. It has a lot more archives than you can ever find. Yeah. On, most of them are linked in a way mm -hmm. now, but um, but yeah, there's a, there's no noise in it. Yeah. It's just pure what you're looking for. And it's it has all of it, which is great. So the search is really easy on, on mm -hmm. Pinterest to me. The search on Instagram is a lot harder. Right. Um, to sift through hashtags is really hard. Yeah, I mean, they, there's so much noise. And well, also people and... just to get traffic they tag in hashtag things that are not even related to the right. images so like literally like nine out of ten images have kardashians hashtag on it and right. it has nothing to do with them. or huda beauty there or was... huda beauty or any yeah. of these things which is so random and bizarre yeah. to me but people do that i guess yeah. just to get traffic to their stuff right you know i think that let's talk about instagram because i'm sure as a makeup artist it sort of changed how you had a or maybe it didn't you know, did it change how you did business? The business of sort of... Oh, it's a second job for us. Really? I mean, yes, because I'm not naturally gravitating towards mm -hmm. social media and I don't have enough followers. But then you... I mean, it's human nature to compare yourself to people that have right. 3 million followers. And you're like, how did it get there? And why? 
right. why so many eyeballs are on them. And it's mind-boggling. And it, I'm very jealous of them. At the same time, I'm just intrigued of what they do. But it's like, I think it's a platform that you just, like, put yourself out there completely. Right. I don't. Yeah. Um, I do some work there, and then it's my dogs and life. It's a lifestyle type of thing. Yes, For me, it's I know, not I, but I love it. Your dogs make me happy. Oh, on the thank weekends. you. Well, I just get, I just honestly get bored if I'm looking at just faces I all agree. day long, and it's variations of the same makeup. I'm like, well, you can only do so many different things, and then also the unreal nature of if you're just like, there's a lot of really popular sites that, and I follow mm-hmm. them and I love them. Mm-hmm. It's just an eyeball. Mm-hmm. Uh, with different makeup of what, the same what, person. What are some of your favorite? Oh gosh, it's hard to. I can never remember their handles. I know someone did this to me, it's and a I went really blank. Hard but... to, um, well, beauty matters is one of them. Oh well, thank you. <laughs> Official. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it really is, and um, I think it's just. There's a lot of makeup artists that are from all over the world. They're they're not really makeup artists that are doing makeup on others. Mm-hmm. They they do makeup on, on themselves. themselves. And it's just a picture of their eye from the mm-hmm. same angle. So every photo is their eye. And in order to create buzz, they mm-hmm. just do these crazy makeups that if it wasn't if you look at the full face, mm-hmm. it doesn't apply it doesn't and it doesn't work. So it only works if it's just one eye. Uh, so it's really interesting to see that they get like, you know, you know, 500,000 likes. Right. And you're like, oh, but if you see her entire face, right. you would go, that this is crazy. Well, so it's all, I mean, it's almost, and I think like on TikTok too, the whole, it's almost like makeup as a form of creative expression. Yes. As a, which is something very different it's than very sort different of the commercial an, side. Uh, of, yeah. It, it's, it's not an applied type of um, field. It's more of a, you know, personal art project right. or personal which I think is project. very cool it's great it's amazing and I'm looking at them like wow this is so beautiful but of course it would last for two minutes right. because there's like because then you go immediately to the practical there. <laughs> it is, and like lip gloss literally like a stripe and you know yeah. it's gonna melt in like two seconds yeah. in, in the eyeball because it's the warmest skin right, on, the, on, right. the, on the face so it's just it's really interesting to see them doing that and it's uh, and they get so much traffic so it's yeah. a it's a very it's not an applied vision board right it's more of a fun thing to look at and then you know just scroll and you forget about it right it's more like entertainment exactly oh it is entertaining it's completely entertaining i mean it's entertainment but it's also become big business well yeah i mean that's what amazes me it's like it's people want to be entertained by everyone Mm -hmm. we're not actors so for makeup artists to really make a make a platform for themselves they they really have to be entertainers mm-hmm. and they have to be on stage they have to talk they have to teach they have to be pretty they have to be fit they have to have the it girl on their chair mm-hmm. and it's really um it's kind of tough for yeah. everyone to do it you know we don't all get to do that well you know but i think what's really interesting is you know this idea of influencers you know social media sort of took the idea of influence that's always been around. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, word of mouth is is how every entrepreneur starts their business because you have no money. But I think social media kind of created this platform. And then off of that, there's been this this completely new business called influencer marketing um, that's emerged. But, you know, you know, one could argue that you are kind of the ultimate influencer. You know, you've built a career based on amazing editorial work and celebrities that are kind of the biggest celebrities in the world and you've been doing them for years 
So, you know, I, I would say that's kind of a more authentic kind of influence, but it sort of evolved to kind of these unboxing and sort of this this crazy kind of packaged form of influence. Well, it's a different type of influence because when when we were coming up, yeah. everything was done three, four months in advance. Right. So you really did have to have a forecasting type of brain. That's true. And say, okay, so what would people do this fall? Or And, and you're thinking about this in the spring because you're going somewhere warm to shoot something. Right. And then the magazine would come out six months later. Well, now it's like, Oh, it's now. It's and, and you're posting it, and it's done. And it's like, and maybe you'll wait a week right. <laughs> by the time they edit it. So it's like all these online magazines and all of that. So it's taking that flavor and that mm-hmm. that weight and that preciousness of like, oh my god, my cover's out, mm-hmm. and then you rush to the magazine store and buy like right. ten of them um, just to archive it. Nowadays, I'm like, oh god, it happens uh, so another, fast. Yeah, so it 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 lost its flavor and. I was actually thinking about this the other day. I'm like, I wonder if it's going to happen at some point that there's too much contents and we are not only flooded psychologically with it, but also there's no room in the world for it. And and we need to purge it. Yeah. We need to like literally recycle and clean it because it's gotten to a point it's absurdity. No, um, I, I agree. I think that there's, you know, it's, it's sort of like we're constantly bombarded by, yeah. especially in New York. By stimulation. Yes, of course. Um, And online, it's just, I mean, I can't even remember. I knew the number of of how many visual images in a day a person consumes. But you can't. You can't actually process it and really appreciate it because it's just noise. That's what it is. It's become noise. And it's also their image is not worth really consuming. I mean, of course, it's subjective and everyone has the right to have their own taste. But... It's gotten to a point that anyone with that creates some kind of shock or posts some kind of uh, semi-provocative photo gets more liked and in turn gets more followers mm-hmm. and that pushes them to the space where the discovery is. And it gets to a point that I'm like, this is crazy. Yeah. It shouldn't be. There should be a filter somewhere in there that would like literally monitor these things well do you ever i mean i know that i do do you ever just say that's it and do sort of a digital detox and just like not pick up your phone not i've, I've not i've not been cool enough to do a detox yet well not not <laughs> official detox <laughs> yes. but no, sometimes i'm just that, sort of like i know people that actually mm. post and say okay for the next three weeks i'll right. be off i'm like Okay, <laughs> great. Why do I need to know this? <laughs> right. Well, it's also kind of become a thing. I think so. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it, it, ironically, in Silicon Valley, they're doing sort of these detoxes. And I'm like, right, but you created the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I want to do detox, I would, uh, in, in like... In like my dream world, yeah. I had this at one point in my house, but then, you know, I moved and I didn't have time to mm-hmm. make it. I had a Faraday cage mm-hmm. that has coppers in it and copper copper mesh uh, Can under my bed. Can you explain what that is? I remember, so it, I actually remember you talking about Oh, yeah. This. It basically uh, creates a space that no electromagnetic wave could come in. And I would turn off the breaker on my bedroom and like literally there would be no wires. There's no electricity. There's absolutely no electric noise. Or, or waves in mm-hmm. my room. And I have to say, it was amazing. Because I you wasn't allowed really to feel keep my difference? phone. Yes, because you couldn't get any reception. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to put everything away. 
and there was no electricity, so you couldn't turn on a TV or radio or anything mm-hmm. or look at your phone. So mm-hmm. it was it was kind of wonderful. I, the, the sleep quality was very different. And then, of course, I got back to life and, and yeah. forgot about it. But for the two or three years that I was forced to do it, my doctor suggested mm-hmm. it. And it wasn't because of the I was online <laughs> all the time. It was because I was <laughs> detoxing for other things. Mm-hmm. It was quite amazing. I had someone also who actually made me change the habit of, you know, there's so many people who the first thing they do when they wake up is they grab their phone. Of course, because that's where your alarm is too now. That's where your alarm is. And then you start going through emails or whatever. And I, you know, I was doing at that time a lot of, um, I had a lot of clients in Europe. And so whatever was in that email was kind of setting the tone for my day. And it wasn't always good. And so, you know, he really made me, he's like, don't keep it. Don't keep the phone in your bedroom. Don't give yourself an hour before you pick it up so you can kind of set the intention of your day. And I have to say it was a little hard at first, but I do it now and I, it really kind of changed everything. Absolutely. It's a habit. Yeah. Yeah. You just refuse to to look at it until you're ready to, to go to work. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's the problem with having limitless access to all everyone yeah. um, and everyone expect immediate answer. Mm-hmm. For example, I'm good at te- on texting, mm-hmm. even texting on or DM on Instagram right. better than actually answering emails. Mm-hmm. Emails I don't even look at until I'm done with work. And sometimes mm-hmm. I'm working until 10, 11 o'clock at night so people can't hear from me. And my agents go crazy because, you know, some of them only deal with email. And then right. I'm like, well, too bad because I don't read my emails right. until the end. And um, so that that could be a problem because they expect you to always be on. Yeah. And, and of course, we're working at a, at a global arena with beauty right. or fashion or any of this. And it's so well connected. But, you know, yes, I mean, when London wakes up, we're up. We're up. Yeah. It's middle of the day for us. And then if we send an email at the end of the day, they are just beginning. Right. And then by the time they get back to us, we are asleep. So it's right. like, it's really it never tough stops. to know. So that expectation has to be more realistic. I saw a movie, a documentary Michael Moore did. It was one of those things was he was interviewing people in Germany. And mm-hmm. it's actually, it's become illegal to, with certain firms to email their coworkers after 6 p.m. They yeah. literally cannot. I actually think that there needs to be sort of more discipline Absolutely. around that. I don't get my work details until nine o'clock at night because it comes from L.A. sometimes. And the people in L.A., they work until six o'clock and they send it at the very last minute. It's nine o'clock New York time. And my call time is at 5 a.m. Yeah. I'm like, come on, people. Well, and it's also sort of we have this, well, especially, I suppose, in New York and and even kind of in the beauty industry with so many entrepreneurs. And, you know, entrepreneurs are incredibly driven because they're passionate and they're on all the time. And sometimes there's this expectation that their team needs to be sort of as on as they are. Mm-hmm. And I think we've all been in situations where you're getting you're getting emails at like ungodly hours. And the expectation is like, well, why didn't you respond? It's like, yeah, I was asleep. <laughs> You mean your phone doesn't (laughs) ding every time you get an email? It's great. It really – and I think that there's – you know, especially in beauty, and this is kind of a good segue to talk about sort of wellness and clean beauty, but in beauty we almost have this this dichotomy where we talk about wellness and 
and health and sort of clean beauty and non-toxic. And then so many of the work environments and the culture is incredibly toxic. Absolutely. The sales floor alone. I worked in sales for, I mean, I started at the counter when I was in college. And in the 80s, 90s, it was amazing. And then it got into early 90s, late 90s was still doable, achievable. Mm -hmm. I came back at a different capacity after college to hit teams for, Mm -hmm. for brands. And the expectations of sales were so incredibly high and impossible to achieve. But, you know, the irony is, and this is like one of my soapboxes, mm-hmm. is that, you know, the most important people, I think, in the beauty industry are the people on the front line, the people you're talking about Absolutely. that are on the sales yeah. floor. You know, for brands, like in that moment, in that store, for that customer, they are the face of the brand. Absolutely. But... So many of these brands don't give them the time of day. No. They're just like, we're paying you X amount um, no, per paid, hour. You need to sell this much. almost minimum wage yeah. in a way. And they're forced to sell, you know, really high yeah. values every single day. But yet they're writing checks to influencers, giving them exactly. the latest products. Yeah. And yet the people in the front line are and expected to sell are the buying. product and they don't get them. Yeah. So there's kind of, I think, a... You know, to me, I I just like I would love to have a platform to be an advocate for those people. And I think like, you know, if you want to know what's happening with consumers, you don't need to hire a focus group. Go talk to the people who are at your counter. They're selling it. They're selling it. They're talking to the customers. No, they are the one that really turns you on to products. Uh, I'm sorry, influencers in social media, we post and it's all because, you know, the brands supply us products or mm. pay us to do it. And and a lot of people, they take that money and post whatever comes their way. And it's um, the saddest thing is that it's not true. It, it's not the truth about products. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't educate you completely about the products. It's until you sit down on that chair and try the cream and put it on for, you know, three or four weeks, mm-hmm. you have no idea of what it does. Right. It's, you know, you, there's no miracle creams out there. And the saddest thing is it's like, yes, most of that budget goes into the influencers' pockets instead of going to Salesforce. And also they don't have the advertising yeah. budget anymore. So they hire anyone. I've been rehired to clean up work that people have done really because they didn't have the budgets to to do it properly and yeah i mean these people they know how to do makeup on themselves it's not right because they watched a youtube video yeah but and they're great at what they're mm-hmm. doing for themselves but it's like you know you cannot do every single face every single the same you, way and you're not you're not savvy at what it takes to do a shoot to make a macro photo for an mm-hmm. for an eyelash so they just stick false eyelashes and I mean it looks like a mess. Right. So it's a really tough thing to to balance. What do you think that what do you think brands can do better in terms of kind of creating truthful content and sort of engaging the the people on the front line? One of the things I I was just in London a few months ago and I saw a few ad campaigns that really interested me and it was all the models were of different ages and they were a lot of women over 40, 40 to 70 mm-hmm. on beauty campaigns, videos. So mm-hmm. it wasn't retouched. It wasn't mm-hmm. crazy looking. It wasn't, you know, some unachievable, insane, triple filtered, mm-hmm. you know, face tuned mm-hmm. image. It was a proper 
beautiful makeup on a beautiful woman that looks like someone that you know. Mm -hmm. So I think if we move towards that trend, it would be amazing. Mm -hmm. um, I know fashion is moving more towards that. Yep. So they're, they're creating fashion for different body shapes, different heights, different vibes. Mm -hmm. um, but beauty hasn't done that yeah. yet. Like yeah. I know there was a couple of, like NARS did a gorgeous campaign mm -hmm. with uh, Charlotte uh, Rampling once. And it one of my yeah. favorite ones, of course, but there need to be more yeah. of that, especially in the American beauty. Arena. What do you think about um, kind of on on that thought, but a little different about the Gucci beauty campaigns? New ones, the new ones I with the new launch. Them. Well, the I've one, well, when they launched the new products with sort of the imperfection and the red lips and the imperfect teeth and the. I, no, honestly, I haven't really? even seen I'm it. I'm going to send it to you. They're yes, amazing. Please. They're so amazing. good. I'm glad they did that. Well, yeah. European brands are trying to go there for sure. Um, a lot more. I mean, I was surprised how many of those kind of images you yeah. would see in Europe. But in America, it's still like that pretty girl, yeah. you know, 17-year-old that we pretend to be 30 and, right. you know, working 18-hour days and have right. a baby and a half. Right. It looks like that. Right. So it's just kind of you know, unachievable beauty here. I know all of it is a fantasy, but it still can be fantastic right. and, and beautiful, but it has to be a little bit more real. So this is um, kind of a good segue into the back half of what we'll talk about, which is a little bit about sort of thinking a little further out and putting our trend forecasting hats on. And then I also want to talk a little bit about your culture. And sort of your, we haven't ta even talked about where you started, which is very interesting. <laughs> yes. That's all up next. And now here's our trend minute brought to you by big thinkers that aren't afraid to make predictions. I'm Navarth Batriwala from the Beauty Conversation, and I'm here to talk about trends. Let's talk about dirty beauty. Okay, guys, it's time to challenge filth phobia. As clean beauty and germ phobic language reach their peak, we're predicting a shift to consumers who are happy to celebrate a more natural state of being. So this includes Gen Z and Y customers pushing back against antiperspirant and deodorant use with over a third of 18 to 34 year olds saying they don't use them. Shaving brands like Flamingo and We The People have also reframed the narrative around hair removal towards something much more nuanced that doesn't pitch body hair as unclean. And skin intellectuals are also learning more about their skin microbiome and the perils of over-enthusiastic cleansing and exfoliating. Now, we see this dirty beauty trend as part of a wider movement that challenges media perfectionism and unrealistic beauty ideals. That's your Trend Minute. I'm Navaz Batliwala. And for more of our insights, go to The Beauty Conversation on Instagram and sign up to our newsletter. Are you a wellness or beauty brand that's looking to secure a retail partner? Landing International are beauty and wellness experts empowering brand builders to democratize the business of beauty retail. With the Landing International B2B marketing and sales platform, you can connect with retail partners and access sales, marketing, and training solutions to enable your brand success. Save 10% on the new premium subscription by emailing beautymatters at landingintl.com. Landing International. 
revolutionizing beauty retail through technology. Mateen, I'm going to use your Instagram bio because, one, I love it because I think it's so, <laughs> I don't know, it's so succinct. And when I read it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's Mateen. Well, because none of it makes sense. Well, yeah. But, but it, it all comes it, together it, somehow. Yeah, exactly, life, right? exactly right. So Afghan-raised feminist, yes. Berkeley-raised molecular biologist, <laughs> New York City-raised makeup artist turned clean beauty and human rights activist. Yes. Or advocate, rather. Advocate. So, you know... Let's first talk about your background in microbiology, right? So mm-hmm. going from microbiology to makeup artist is a little incongruous. Well, yeah, that's how <laughs> my, my life was on these segments. And then somehow it all came together. Um, I sold makeup. Mm-hmm. So I I came here without speaking a word of English. And How you old know, were you? I was 17 and a half. Oh, wow. And I couldn't get a job after a while. And I was like, I needed to make money to go to school. And I paid for my own school. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have, I, I didn't even know what scholarship was mm-hmm. or any of that. I literally was like plucked out of my country, dropped into India, waiting to get a visa to go to f- hopefully France, I was hoping. Mm-hmm. I ended up in Northern California because mm-hmm. my sister lived there and she um, somehow managed to get us visas to come here. This mm-hmm. was during the Soviet war with Afghanistan. Uh-huh. And I literally lived with a small suitcase of clothes wow. with nothing else because we pretended that we were going to... On vacation? Or not even no. vacation. It was uh, my mom had to go to do some medical things uh-huh. in India. And India was the only place that you could get a visa. At that and time. did your whole family? So no, we came in segments. Uh-huh. So okay. we all lived separately and then uh, a few weeks later, my dad sent my two younger sisters to mm-hmm. India, and then we all, so at least the three of us mm-hmm. were together. And I had older sisters, three older sisters mm-hmm. outside all over the world. And mm-hmm. then eventually everybody merged into Northern California. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a, every immigrant's family have mm-hmm. gone through this. And so that's what happened. And I ended up finding myself in America with the only word I knew was thank you. Mm-hmm. Literally nothing else. And I had to get a job. And so I worked at a fast food for a while and... And it was good. It was it it, it worked. Mm-hmm. But I always I was interested in in fashion for sure. Mm-hmm. Beauty was never in my radar. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I enjoyed it because I watched my sister get ready mm-hmm. all the time. So mm-hmm. I was the I was the eyebrow patrol and the makeup oh, patrol. When I was a kid, they would make me sit in front of them and when when they got ready, uh-huh. and they would ask me if it was symmetrical, and and, and then they would of course they would beat me up if I said oh, no. Oh really? <laughs> And I always say no. Where are we? So you have six, <laughs> sisters. six sisters. Where where are you sort of I in have, that? I have four older and two younger. younger. So the so four older ones the... were, by the time I was like, you know, eight, nine years old, they were already grown up enough uh-huh. to wear makeup all the time. Right. And they were all like glamour pussies. Uh-huh. Uh, and my mom was. Uh-huh. But they, this was, you know, they were coming up in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. And it was still like thin eyebrows. And they mm-hmm. would like pencil in their eyebrows mm-hmm. completely like these weird, weird arches that eyebrows shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. They all have no brows anymore. Uh-huh. Um, so it was those those days that they would just like draw on their brows. And uh-huh. it's really hard to get it perfectly right. done on your own. But it was fascinating to watch them transform themselves from like, you know, little girls to like these women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were all really glamorous, beautiful girls. That's how I, I was introduced to mm-hmm. beauty. And my family was one of those families that they had, you know group waxing day and those days I knew that I had to stay outside and play outside okay. because I would get beaten up because they would be in pain the girls oh, uh, so they would like um, 
their friends would come in and they mm-hmm. would just like team up and they would make a batch of sugar, sugaring, I should say, mm-hmm. more than waxing. And they would put the sugar on their legs and they would just like yank it out and mm-hmm. scream. So it was like really interesting, interesting. place. To, and I was the only boy growing up. Uh-huh. So it was like there was no boundaries because, you mm-hmm. know, when women are all together, right. they don't care what they have on and... I mean, it was just like half naked women running around mm-hmm. all day long with masks on their faces and rollers. And mm-hmm. so it was like growing up in a beauty salon. Right. Interesting. Um, it was really fun. It was really fun. I, I would not exchange mm-hmm. it for anything else. And my mom used to take me to the salon whenever she mm-hmm. got ready. So I would be sitting in the salon all day watching mm-hmm. these women getting their hair done. So it was that kind of environment that I grew up, but I really loved fashion. Mm-hmm. And I um, I always looked at catalogs and mm-hmm. um, in magazines, whatever I could get my hands mm-hmm. on in Afghanistan. And uh, when I came here, I wanted to work maybe in a store or something. Mm-hmm. I said, well, why not there? And as soon as I could speak a little bit of English, mm-hmm. and I was that one guy because I, I spoke French and I uh-huh. didn't know any Italian. Uh-huh. I am that guy that called Versace Versace. Uh, Versace. Versace. <laughs> Versace. <laughs> This is the 80s. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, I kept applying. And finally, I got a job at the European Designer Department mm-hmm. at Macy's in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. This is before they had a men's store and all right. that. So it was really tiny. And I got exposed to, like, the most beautiful men's clothes. And it was mm-hmm. really fun. And I, um, you know, I started learning how to dress or dressing up better. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was an 80s kid. It was right. fun. Like I made half of my clothes. I would go to thrift stores and buy. But then how did you end up studying molecular biology? So that was always my my path. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to be a plastic surgeon ah, okay. because of the war in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You know, kids were getting blown up in bits and pieces and they were losing limbs and um, burned skin. And I wanted to do uh, reconstructive. I have to say, if I did go to that path, and didn't go back to a war zone, I would have been the poorest plastic surgeon <laughs> in the world. Because I would have not touched people's faces the way mm, they want. Yeah. I literally would have refused every client. Well, especially sort of at that time, sort of in the 80s and 90s, oh, yeah. where plastic surgery was far from natural. I think it's worse now. Do you really? Oh, yeah. Because at least then people didn't have access to it. So very oh, few that- looked bad. Now, almost everyone looks bad. Um, So I would have been really, really poor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, honest to God, it's like, there's only like a couple that I trust. Mm -hmm. It's borderline criminal what they do to women. Anyway, to go back. So I did pre-med for four Uh years in molecular biology. I studied anatomy and molecular biology. And then I interned with a plastic surgeon Mm -hmm. and I... My, the first nose job I watched, I passed out four times. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I could roll up my sleeve if it was like an emergency because I uh-huh. worked in the hospital. I uh-huh. worked in a in a nursing home at one point. Uh-huh. These these are the odd jobs, odd jobs that I had, that had. Uh, going, uh, you know, in college, just in, in healthcare. Mm-hmm. I had no problem with it at all. Mm-hmm. If it was an emergency, blood didn't bother me. But as soon as you took the scalpel and deliberately cut somebody live... Mm-hmm. I would pass out. Wow. And I had no idea that that was going to happen. Uh-huh. Well, I, I mean, mean, how I would you? I came from war. Right. I mean, I've seen, I've seen brutality, but this was plastic surgery is another uh-huh. level of brutal. Because it's elective and it's like, right. there's no reason for it. In, in America, right. at least. Well, right. There is reason for it, but, but it's for, you know, the for elective For cosmetic part is purposes, not, yeah. yeah. So I, um, I realized that I, I, I can't continue. I tried mm-hmm. it for a whole year and it never got better. Wow. And it was one of those things that I'm like, I guess 
I'm going to have to do something else. And then I took my master's mm-hmm. in molecular biology and I stopped at my master's. Mm-hmm. Thank God I didn't get a PhD on that uh-huh. because it was like something I really didn't like. Uh-huh. I loved the process of creating the formula that I did for mm-hmm. my master's. It was patented and mm-hmm. it, um, Genentech uses it. So it mm-hmm. was really fun to do that. Mm-hmm. I was part of a project that created Pulmozyme, which is a cystic fibrosis drug. Mm-hmm. So creating and designing that with my boss, it was really fun because mm-hmm. it was like, at one point I was very nervous. I had to give a presentation in front of all these postdocs and like, you know, gigantic scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to him. I'm like, I'm so nervous. I don't think I can talk in public. And he looked at me and goes, you know what? You know more about this molecule than the folic acid it was. Yeah. He goes, you know more about folic acid pathway than anybody in that room. So this is your molecule. Right. Whatever you say, they're going to buy it. So right. you just relax. And say what you know. Anyway, I was like, oh, my God, this is so, like, literally micro-specialized. Because uh-huh. when I went there, I really was the authority right. on that product. Yeah, yeah. So just designing that and making the media. The media was, was supposed to make the cell lines that we were making, the um, protein, and it doubled their cell cycle. Uh-huh. So they literally, like, doubled the money that they could mm-hmm. harvest in one time instead of half. Mm-hmm. So it was a huge project. And it was really creative and beautiful. Mm-hmm. But once... My project was done. It became a routine. And mm-hmm. the routine part, I really did not like. Because it's very isolating. I mean, I was mm-hmm. living in a in a room not bigger than this. And it was my lab. And nobody was allowed in or out. I had an amazing stereo mm-hmm. system. So I played music all day long mm-hmm. and, like, literally babysat cells. Mm-hmm. So it became very isolating. And it's a, it's a very different type of life. Well, your career is, like, sort of the antithesis of that, Completely. right? You're around people all I'm the time, all the time. No? Yeah, it's, it's um, like, and it's what I love. Yeah. So it was very difficult for me to just be alone that, that long. Do you think that your background in sort of science and, and biology gives you a, a unique perspective to evaluating products that... It, it helped me a lot with getting contracts, for sure. Although they don't listen to me like they should, but it does help. And it's it's a good PR for the brands mm-hmm. when they when they introduce me. Mm-hmm. So it's like it gives them a, some kind of an edge that, oh, mm-hmm. this guy knows what he's talking about. But at the same time, it's not like, sadly, so far, it hasn't been like, oh, let's, how do we clean this? Right. Like I, I joined a brand with the intention of cleaning up in five years, cleaning up the products and mm-hmm. making it less toxic. Everything is toxic. Let's yeah. put it this way. There's no such thing well, as Well, you were talking clean. about clean beauty before it was before even it was a, thing. a yeah. thing. Exactly. It was, and it was one of those things that, I mean, toxicity is a, is a real thing. And it's the saddest thing is until, as a, as a human being, we are the kind of animals that and until we get sick and until we experience it, we don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And by that time, it's too late. Right. I even started a project with, with a friend of mine who was really advocate to clean beauty because she had skin cancer. And we started this line for a younger audience and nobody was interested. These kids were literally the only thing they were interested in, how to contour and highlight their face. Well, you know, I I was talking to someone recently and I hadn't really thought about this, but that there's actually, I guess, an uptick in skin cancer on the face particularly. And people are beginning to think that you know, before we would put sunscreen on, mm-hmm. but now there's sunscreen in everything we use, mm-hmm. in our moisturizers. And sunscreen in is our one makeup. of the most toxic products. Right. So we're layering consume. chemical. Uh, and I had never really thought about the impact of these hybrid products and sort of these, you know, I guess the layering of, of sunscreen. Yeah. 
Well, sunscreen is, there was a study that I read early on, and that's one of the reasons I left one of my favorite collaboration that I had with a mm-hmm. product line because they insisted on sunscreen on everything, including lip products. And mm-hmm. I was really against it for lips. I read a really interesting um, article. This is when I was still a molecular biologist. Mm-hmm. There was a study done in England with children with freckles. And there were a group of children with freckles that played outside with sunscreen and one group without sunscreen. Then five years later, they looked at their skin and the ones that had more precancerous uh, freckles mm-hmm. were the ones that were that that had sunscreen on, hmm. and the reason was that they didn't get the warning that "ouch, this hurts, let me right. go in the shade." They were exposed to the sun all day long mm-hmm. without the hurt, but they would still get the harmful rays. Gotcha. So sunscreen really it's a this is really really controversial to say, yeah. and people will hate me to say it. I honestly don't believe in it. I there, I I mean I I have. You're not the first person to Good. That, I'm glad that somebody but, else will you know, get the, I, the hate. I think it's I think it is we tend to forget how we started as humans and how we evolved. Like we live for thousands of years without sunscreen. But yes, we but have these sort of environmental sort of issues. Just oils that but, will give you an eight or a ten naturally and it's there's no chemicals in it. Yeah. Um Honestly, if you're that pale and you're going to go to the beach for 12 hours, you have no business being, being in, the in the beach naked at, for 12 exactly. hours. No. At 1 p.m., nobody should be on the yeah. beach. Yeah. Uh, completely it's start just a naked little common sunbathing. sense. There's no reason for it. Yeah. And wear a hat. Yeah. Wear a long sleeve t-shirt. It's like there's no reason for you to expose yourself to that kind of the sun all day long. Yeah. So that's my problem with 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 this whole. But in such a gigantic industry that yeah. everybody's like looking for sunscreen, every skincare advocate pushes, oh, mm-hmm. don't forget your sunscreen. I'm like, okay, it's the middle of December in New York City. It's completely gray. Yeah, of course we get uh, sun rays coming mm-hmm. through this, the clouds, but you're working 10 hours a yeah. day inside a building. I'm sorry, you don't need sunscreen for fluorescent lights. Well, I'm also, there are now a, sort of a new group of products that are kind of uh, environmental protection. I've seen a new trend, and I think it's an algae ingredient that provides blue light protection. That's way better. I know someone who's actually allergic to indoor lights. Mm-hmm. She had to use screen because of it, because she would, she would turn hot and red oh, on her wow. face. It's the only one I've known. Mm-hmm. But if you have that kind of allergy, yeah. I get it. But really, 90% of women, there's no reason yeah. for it to wear every day. Well, you know, in terms of sort of clean beauty, mm-hmm. I think clean beauty kind of brings together your advocacy and sort of kind of what drives you, which is sort of this truthfulness. Where do you think clean beauty is going to go? Because right now, it's everyone's saying they're doing it. Yeah. And you and I both know. Yeah. It's become a hashtag more than anything yeah, else. Yeah, that, you know, on one hand, you have you have brands saying, oh, we have an algorithm that allows us to develop products in three weeks. And it's like, well, that's impossible because you have to do stability for 90 days. So Thank I'm you. not sure how that works. <laughs> um, but, you know, do you really – do you think – how are we going to get to the truthfulness that I think as an industry – we owe consumers. I think we have some good leaders in the market. They're brands that are seriously impactful. And they're not only looking at the clean formulation. Mm-hmm. Um, they're looking into clean packaging and, and environmental impact of makeup. And not only that, the workforce, how are they treated? Who is harvesting these ingredients? Especially with mica. Exactly. 
mica is a big deal right now because children were using those, you know, were used mm -hmm. in those mines. So there are some brands that are only sourcing with mines that are certified with adult workers. So it's like, you know, beauty is not all fluff. There's some real um, harm that is being mm -hmm. done by by producing an abundant amount of products yeah. for for people to look good. First of all, I think it's just there's way too there's much too in the much market. Product. There's too many products in the market. There's no reason for And do you think that it. that is, you know, I had someone, um, someone from the Huffington Post uh, did an interview and asked me about Visco Girls. Mm -hmm. And someone from Piper Jaffray actually downgraded Estee Lauder and said that the decline in color cosmetics was because of Visco Girls. And I was just like, First of all, I think it's a great tagline or like, you know, a sound bite. I was like, but I don't think 13-year-old girls have been the reason that we've seen <laughs> the rise of an entire category or a decline of an decline. entire category. But I think it, you know, I think color cosmetics, social media influencers was kind of like this perfect storm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, color was the easiest beauty category because it's so visual yeah. and you just had launch after launch after launch after collaboration and eventually you had like a glut yeah. there was too much product there were too many brands the retailers were over assorted and what happens the sales go down makes sense and that's exactly the the kind of noise that we were talking about earlier with social media it's like i i don't want to see content for right. the sake of content i want to see something interesting or nothing at all just relax right. Just for have a day off. You don't need to have three posts no, a day. No, I mean, for me, I think, you know, I'm always of the mindset of, you know, people often say, oh, 30-second videos are trending. No, it's long-format videos that are oh, trending. No, it's every day. And, and I'm of the mindset of, like, content is whatever it needs to be. Yeah. Just make sure it's good. Yeah, exactly. And if it's good, Make it good, make it authentic, it. make it something that you really believe in, not just for the sake of doing it. Right. And that's the problem. And I think Color Cosmetic got to a point that, first of all, they just put anything with a name on it and it mm -hmm. sells and it's completely, I mean, long wear lipstick, I'm sorry. Who needs to have lipstick on for 16 hours? No one. Right. No one. And it doesn't last 16 hours or 18 hours or 24 hours nowadays. Right. And there's no reason for it. The only way to make it plaster onto the lips like that is to put extremely toxic aromatics in it. Mm -hmm. And it's literally, you, you might as well just ingest cancer, uh, like tumors that are removed from people. That would be healthier than putting on those lipsticks on. And it's lipstick, so you're eating it. Yeah. You're licking your lips. And it's, it's very dangerous to put that on the thinnest skin on the body. Mm -hmm. um, so it's that kind of trends that come in, in and it's still staying in taking advantage of the youth mm -hmm. in the younger audience because it's cheaper. It's these, these women, they wear it for fun. They mm -hmm. wear it for a picture and they get hooked on it. And it's, you know, and, and that's who they're taking the money from. And it's, mm -hmm. it honestly, it really disturbs me and it hurts me to see that. It's just, there are certain companies, as we were talking about the clean, going towards clean, like Credo created a group of makeup artists and mm -hmm. environmentalists. And it's, and they're not about all organic. It's about right. non-toxic and, right. and, and uh, responsible sourcing. Mm -hmm. I think they are getting more and more into a true, authentic And I think retailers have a role to play in this. Absolutely. Um, Whether it's online or, or physical retailers, mm -hmm. but not a lot of them are responsible mm -hmm. um, in sourcing. So every brand, of course, they have their standard of clean and what they think is clean and what's not. 
but one of the most stringent one is the one that I see over there. Right. It's, uh, they really do a good job of weeding everything out. Mm-hmm. And even products that I thought was clean was refused when I recommended to them. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of like that's, that's where I shop. <laughs> well, um, you know, I think the other sort of issue is around clean is this whole greenwashing that we're seeing. Yeah. And I just recently, I think it was a couple weeks ago, Cult Beauty partnered with this um, blockchain company called Provenance. They're actually creating a kind of a platform where brands, there's two forms of validation. One is third party validated and the other is more substantiated. Mm-hmm. But that Cult Beauty is, I think they've launched with 10 brands that are using blockchain to verify their claims. Um, because so I think so many brands are just left to make claims with with no substantiation. Make, yeah, exactly. Well, that's. I think that's what transparency is going to be the next wave of yeah. what will survive. And sooner or later, people are going to buy into like really realizing what's healthy and what's not. Because skin is the biggest organ on your yeah. body. Whatever you put on it, it goes in it. And, you know, whether you get sick or not, at some point, you're going to be bombarded with enough information that you would actually, you know, buy into it mm-hmm. and really think twice about just putting anything on your body. So I want one last thing that I, I don't want, I want to make sure that we talk about because I know it's very important to you, is your advocacy on the nonprofit that you set up called Afghan Hands, which makes the most beautiful scarves. Oh, thank you so much. Um, but can you talk about sort of why it was important for you to start it and kind of what it does and the intention? Well, when Afghanistan opened up again after the Taliban, it was a very hopeful time for all of us. And... I went to Afghanistan and it was shocking. People were dancing on the street, literally. I went right before the New Year's, Afghan New Year's, which is March 22nd. And people were outside playing music in their cars loud. Because you, the Taliban, you couldn't play music, right? Yeah, it was forbidden. Dance was forbidden. So everyone was on the street. It was like a big block parties in every neighbor. It was it was kind of amazing. I, mm-hmm. I was crying every day from happiness and from sadness mm-hmm. because the city was destroyed. Nothing was left. The Taliban didn't destroy the city. The mm-hmm. you know the the factions fighting against mm-hmm. each other did, and then um, the Taliban took life out of the city, and women weren't allowed out. And all of a sudden, you'd see men and women on the streets. They would still burkas were mm-hmm. were strong because. They lived with it for so long mm-hmm. and they were afraid of going out without it. But there were still some women without it. And then men, I mean, they were literally, they were dancing on the streets. And, you know, foreigners were walking around shopping. It was just a really hopeful time. This lasted until the Iraq war started and when uh, Americans kind of like put Afghanistan in the back burner again and, and focused on mm-hmm. Middle East. But for that period of time, it was flourishing. And there was 30 years of women not being able to go to school before, you know, during the war, it was the war efforts. Um, women were being kidnapped and they were being, there were some cases of, of gang raped by the sol- Russian mm-hmm. soldiers and, and their bodies were thrown back out uh, by their door. So it was that kind of, I don't know if it was a rumor or mm-hmm. a fact, but things like that were circulating. So people were holding their girls um, inside. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't go to school. They couldn't go shopping. They were literally imprisoned in mm-hmm. these compounds that they were living in. So I realized that there were like literally two generations of women that did not know how to read and write unless wow. their parents taught them. And mm-hmm. most families, they had enough to worry about than, right. than teaching literacy to, to to anybody. I realized that these women, they really needed to to be somehow 
literate, at least to read a sign, to read where the bus is going, to read where the doctor's office is, to read a document and not just put their thumbprint on something mm -hmm. that could actually sign. So those things were important. Also, another thing that we wanted to teach was um, their rights as women according to the culture, according to religion. So they couldn't come and say, well, in the Quran says that you cannot walk outside mm -hmm. the store. And they would say, well, no, show me where in the Quran right. does it say this? Because it's really, it's just a word of mouth that people mm -hmm. use um, religion against um, women to, mm -hmm. to imprison them. So those were the reasons that I started thinking about doing a literacy program in Afghanistan. So Afghan Hands is essentially a literacy program. And it's very grassroots. It's tiny. It's uh, So we have five to 10 women at, at the beginning. We started with that. And by the time I left Afghanistan in 20 days, we had 25. Wow. And then it went to 100 within, within a year. And then it went to 200 the next year. So some of them move in and out. Mm -hmm. um, so we've kept a body of, of 75 to 100 in Kabul. Mm -hmm. We had an, another 100 in Jalalabad, which is eastern Afghanistan, but the security was so bad. I, I literally, I was in danger of mm. traveling there. And I'm not an NGO that is... Um, protected. That is protected or has the, um, uh, what do you call it, USAID money mm -hmm. or anything like that. So I don't have security. I mean, right. I go as a local and, you know, so it was dangerous to go for me. So I had to give that to someone else. So I concentrated in Kabul and we survived for many, many years and it was really flourishing beautifully. At least for me, success was that if the project made enough money on its own to keep this hundred families fed and clothed and educated. That that was my goal. Mm -hmm. That was my Afghanistan. It still is. Unfortunately, the security, there was a big bomb that was called the mother, mother mm -hmm. of bombs that dropped, I think it was three years ago in Kabul. That really shook the city to its core and people left. Uh, my suppliers left and I couldn't get things in and out. So I, I sent one time products back. So up to last year, we still was, were producing products to sell mm -hmm. in the market here. But it's been a year that they only operate within Kabul and they cannot mm -hmm. operate outside because it's just, we don't have materials. Wow. In Afghanistan, you cannot just go and buy the best wool and mm -hmm. the best thread Mm -hmm. that could be considered high quality in America. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of at a standstill when it comes to the import mm -hmm. business. But we're just operating within Afghanistan for now. Um, so it's been, you know, there's a there's a famous Afghan song. It says, um, one step forward, two step back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're doing. So we're right. just, as long as we're still going a little bit further and forward, I'm happy. But it's been, it's been a sore subject for, for my psyche and for my um, for my soul, mm -hmm. because it had the promise of really becoming a phenomenon, and it's still the model is amazing. So we might have to do it somewhere else in the world mm -hmm. um, that is safer, that we can mm -hmm. actually operate freely, um, and women could operate freely. Mm -hmm. But Afghanistan was unfortunately was one of those tough situations. But I'm, I'm not giving it up. Right. It's just we couldn't expand the way I was right. uh, I was hoping to do. Right. Well, I think that, you know, what you can created with Afghan hands is it's so important that I think, you know, we're sometimes so detached. I mean, you obviously weren't, um, you know, it's your, it's sort of where you're from and yeah. you have a connection there. But I think kind of as an industry, one of the things that kind of makes me happy and I think that I'm, we're also at a point in our career where 
we have the resources that we can leverage to not only sort of make money and make a living, but actually affect change. Because I know that you used your kind of your network uh, to help promote it and build it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, it was uh, I never wanted to do celebrity makeup. It was the Mm -hmm. weirdest thing. I wanted to do fashion. And the more fashion I wanted, the more celebrities I got. I had no idea who they were what they were doing, what movies they were in, how famous they were. I literally had, I never watched television. I hardly watched movies mm-hmm. at that time when I first moved to New York. And then, but they, I kept getting booked for them. So at some point I just gave up. I'm like, okay, this is my mm-hmm. my my field. This is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, later in life, when I started Afghan Hands, and then, you know, like Angelina wore one and it got People Magazine. And I was like, oh my God. This is why I was brought right. on this path instead mm-hmm. of that path. It was interesting because it was for a, reason. for a reason. It was really interesting. So that was that was the like a bulb, light bulb mm-hmm. went on that like you know when when your life kind of yeah. makes sense all of a sudden. So that was and another thing. It was it was one of those projects that I started. Um, so I initially funded it with my with the seed money that I put mm-hmm. um, from the money that I saved, and then. Um, what I did was there were two kinds of clients. There are clients that I really love to do and there mm-hmm. were clients that I really didn't want to do, whether they were a look that I didn't like or appreciate or mm-hmm. a style that I didn't appreciate. So I basically put the money that with the clients that I didn't want mm-hmm. towards Afghan hands. Oh, interesting. To fund it. And the um, clients that I wanted, I kept the money for myself. Mm-hmm. And it made my job a lot easier. Interesting. Because I didn't Because there was a reason to take those jobs There was a reason. And I, it, it just like if, if they were negative about it or if I didn't like their energy, I would just roll it off my shoulder and be like, you know what? This, this is, is gonna going feed to feed 100 families for two weeks. That's amazing. So that's how I viewed the jobs and the dollar amounts. And and it kept my sanity because I was really getting burned out. I can imagine. And I was I was not enjoying my job. Mm. And so it was kind of a selfish endeavor yeah. as well. So Mateen, just in wrapping up, first of all, thank you so much oh for coming God, here. It's always honor. so fun to talk to you. Absolutely. Um, if there was one piece of advice that you could give to sort of a burgeoning makeup artist or one of those people working so hard sort of on the sales floor – that could make a really profound impact into their career, what would it be? I'm an old school type of makeup artist. So I would say find someone that you really like, um, their technique and their their looks, and then assist them. Mm-hmm. I completely buy into true education and really like learning your craft instead of just winging it mm-hmm. and say that, oh, by practice, I'll get better and mm-hmm. better. Because it's just, it's a, it's an environment that is very different. You want to learn how to do makeup in different environment, in different faces, in different situations. So I would, I still believe in, in a proper assistant job. Yeah, you don't make money. You don't, it's not gratifying. It's very hard work, but it's something that is very valuable at the end mm-hmm. uh, when you really are accountable for, a campaign or, mm-hmm. or, or or a look for a show or something like that, then you really, it pays off to know all of that. As opposed to nowadays, you know, you do a YouTube channel and you do an Instagram page that is cute and you're pretty. So you get a lot of likes and you get jobs from it, which is wonderful, but you still need to really learn how to. And it is a craft. It. It's, a, it's a craft. It's, yeah. it's a job. 
it's it's a proper job. It's not just fantasy. So I would like to have them properly trained for that. Well, Mateen, thank you for for coming here today. I was so happy to yeah. see you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much thank for having you. me. For Mateen, it's a matter of truth. He's both inspirational and aspirational. Coming to this country as an immigrant, speaking no English as a teenager, his career in beauty started as a way to help subsidize his master's degree in molecular biology. After a brief time working as a research scientist, he made a career-changing pivot that put him on a wildly different path. While brands continue to increase influencer budgets, the concern around credibility, reputation, and the quality of followers are top of mind. Mateen's relationships are not transactions, they're partnerships. And the influence he wields is built on a portfolio of work that represents years of honing his craft. The real power in his reach is profound, and it can't be quantified simply by the number of likes and followers. Influencers have proliferated the marketing of beauty products across categories and will continue to have their place in the marketing ecosystem. But I believe Mateen's type of influence is what consumers crave. They want meaningful and real content. They want expertise, not advertisements. So in the end, it's a matter of truth. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. Hi, I'm Mateen, and to me what matters is the truth. The truth about products that I use, products that I post, and products that are authentic to me. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter LLC, copyright 2020. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media at Beauty Matter Official. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect.